Greetings once again, folks, and welcome to the Lessons from the Cockpit show. I am your host, Mark Hacera, with a little bit of a froggy voice this week. The reason I didn't put out a show is because I had a terrible bout of the flu, and I'm still feeling some of the effects of it. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most fascinating and interesting pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose is to hear their stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from these extraordinary and exemplary events that they went through in their lives where their aviation careers were concerned? The results of this analysis is giving you, the listeners, an opportunity to learn how does the aviation world work and improve critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. But this is also a great way for some of these great veterans to finally tell their stories and the things that they learned. Today's show is sponsored by Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are extremely detailed profile drawings that are printed on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to the, any flat surface. Some people just frame them though too. So please go by the website wallpilot.com and order one or two of these profile prints because that's what supports the show. That's what keeps us going. I recently began a TikTok page called Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Sarah. I actually have three videos that have over a million views. So go by and take a look at some of the videos and my explanation of what's going on. There's a lot of really great air refueling videos on there. And air refueling is what we're going to talk about today. This week while I was sick, I pulled out a couple of books just to kind of refresh my memory on some things. And there is a very popular publisher in Europe that does a lot of aviation books. And while I was going through this author who's pretty well known, I noticed that a lot of the air refueling information that he had in it wasn't right. And today I want to set the record straight. How was the Iraqi Freedom Shock and Awe North War air campaign refueled? This is B-52s, ISR, and Navy assets off of the Truman and Roosevelt. And that's the story I'm going to tell today to kind of set everything straight on how we plan these missions, the restrictions that we had, and how we refueled at that time. And I don't think anything's broken the record yet. The longest Navy strike package mission in naval aviation history, 2,800 miles round trip to their defensive counter air points. And I've interviewed a lot of the guys that flew these missions, folks, and this is going to be really fascinating because these are long missions. And the two air wing commanders chose different ways to do this. So grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin a history of air refueling planning and execution for the Iraqi Freedom Shock and Awe North War that was predominantly two carrier air wings. Okay, well, first of all, we've got to start off with my credentials. Who am I to be able to say, hey, some of the information out there that's published is incorrect. This is the reason I can talk about this. I was the chief of the air refueling control team. I had about 30 guys and gals on my team that were doing both planning upstairs in what's called the master air attack plan cell and executing down on the floor of the Prince Sultan Air Base Combined Air and Space Operations Center. I was the guy. 
that was the head of all air refueling in the Middle East. I had full responsibility for all air refueling assets, no matter which nation was providing tankers to the coalition. Now, I am the first to admit, I am not smart enough to do a lot of this, okay? And I had a fantastic team at the Prince Sultan Kayak that was helping do all of this. And I still keep in touch with a number of these people. Some of the people that were working on my planning staff had been graduates of the KC-135 Combat Employment School, as it was called at that time, later the KC-135 Weapons School. It was not a U.S. Air Force Weapons School validated course yet. We had to call ourselves something else, which we did. We fell under the Air Mobility Weapons School as the KC-135 Combat Employment School. But I understand about 85% of the syllabus that we created in the year 2000 is still being used. So we did a pretty good job of putting that syllabus together and training all of these air refueling experts that we now really, really needed because we went through six weeks of hell. Everything that we had planned, and I mean literally everything that we had planned prior to the beginning of Iraqi freedom and the Shakanak campaign went out the window where air refueling was concerned. And there was two reasons for this. The first and most important reason was we did not get the bed down locations for tankers that we were expecting. Okay, what do I mean by bed down? Bed down means where we were going to locate the tankers. Most of the places that we looked at were unsatisfactory as we were doing round two. One of the largest locations for air refueling assets during the Shakanah campaign was supposed to be at Inserlik Air Base outside Adana, Turkey. Well, as you all know, the Turks told us, no, you can't base your aircraft inside of Turkey. So that ruled Inserlik out right away, and we were going to put 38 tankers there. So we had 38 homeless tankers that we had no idea where we were going to put those down. And here's a really funny story about that. Obviously, we had to go in and brief the Combined Forces Air Component Commander, or CFAC, which at that time was Lieutenant General Mike Mosley. I can't say enough good things about General Mosley and working for him. He was a fabulous boss. He understood the big picture and I got in trouble twice for things that were beyond my control and he was very good about handling those. Well, one of the guys working on my strategy staff was a KC-10 pilot and his call sign was Sexy Fred. And Sexy Fred came in with the briefing on, now we're not going to have the basing rights that we thought we had. And he called it the roast beef, no turkey plan. <laughs> and Mosley about fell out of his chair when Sexy Fred got up there and put that first slide up. Roast beef, no turkey. <laughs> but even that plan didn't last 48 hours. So now we are having to find locations for our tankers that we're starting from scratch. Fortunately, at the KC-135 Combat Employment School, this is one of the things that we taught. Where are the best places to put KC-135s or any tankers that are going to fly a lot of missions? 
There's really only two places you can do that. The first is a prepared airfield like Inserlik Air Base. Well, got to cross that off. That ain't going to happen. The second place is obviously international airfields. The reason why is the runway length, but the most important reason if you're going to sustain tanker operations for a long time where you have 38 tankers that are going to fly possibly up to 50 missions, you have to have a place with a lot of gas. Here's the reason. 50 KC-135 missions are going to take off with 180,000 pounds of jet fuel. So doing some math in public here, 38 tankers on the ramp. We had a 1.4 crew ratio, meaning we had 1.4 crews per airplane. So they could fly 53 missions. 53 missions loaded with 180,000 pounds of gas means I was going to use 9,540,000 pounds of jet fuel in a single 24-hour air tasking order. Do you see where I'm going with this? We could only fly sustained tanker operations can only happen from a military prepared airfield or an international airport because those are the only places that can bunker that kind of fuel store that kind of fuel let's talk for just a moment about crew ratio obviously if i have a 2.0 crew ratio meaning i have two crews per airplanes i can fly more sorties the KC-135 community at that time period, and if I remember right, this the number was 1.4 crews per airplane that was deployed over there. That was also another problem that we had to deal with. We could not fly more sorties because we didn't have the crews. Why didn't we have the crews and why didn't we have the extra tails or aircraft to fly missions was because the terrorist threat level went up back home. There was 127 KC-135s or KC-10s on alert back home when the threat level went up as Iraqi freedom and the Shakhanah campaign started. And to top all of this off, Kim Chung-un, the father of the current guy thought, well, while the Americans are busy in the Middle East, why don't I get busy here? And we had to send 25 aircraft to Anderson Air Force Base Guam, again, only with a 1.4 crew ratio. One of the things that was really sticking in our ribs was we could not have guard or reserve crews fly active duty airplanes. So that further restricted us because in a lot of the guard and reserve units, they had higher crew ratios. Now, here's how I fixed that. I sat down with Gramps, who was another one of our strategists. He had been on the initial cadre for the KC-135 Combat Employment School, just like me. And I said, Gramps, how are we going to fix this? And both of us came to the conclusion, we have to get Air Mobility Command to allow Guard and Reserve crews to fly active duty airplanes and active duty crews permission to fly Guard and Reserve airplanes. Even though the nomenclature for the airplanes, KC-135, Block 30, and I think the Guard was flying KC-135 Block 28s, the airplanes were virtually identical. 
I sat down one day with Gramps sitting next to me, and I banged out a letter to standardization and evaluation. And I said, look, the airplanes that the Garden Reserve fly and the active duty fly are virtually the same airplanes. We have to be able to increase our crew ratio in theater to at least 2.0. I want a waiver signed by the AMC Deputy of Operations, a two-star general, allowing active duty crews to fly guard reserve airplanes and guard reserve crews to fly active duty airplanes. And sure enough, in 48 hours, it came through. We didn't have enough ramp space to bring those guard and reserve airplanes over. And this is where this book made this mistake that guard and reserve airplanes were in theater. They were not, but the crews were. I told Air Mobility Command, okay, you've activated all of these Guard Reserve units. Leave the airplanes where they're at because I don't have room for them, but I definitely have room for the crews so that I can ramp up my sortie rate by allowing the Guard and Reserve to fly active airplanes and the active guys to fly Guard and Reserve airplanes. And this works so slick at Prince Sultan Air Base because I had a rainbow of crews. I realized this is like just dead horse logic. But again, those were the restrictions that we had at the time that we had to work through. And I had to write a number of these kinds of requests for waivers for flying hours and for air crews being able to fly airplanes across the spectrum. And AMC was fine with that. And those approvals came, like I said, within 48 hours because they made sense. Just about three or four days prior to Shakanah beginning on Friday, the 21st of March, Prime Minister Tony Blair of England said, hey, why don't you guys just pack your tankers into Akrotiri on the island of Cyprus? And I thought, okay, that's a great place for them. That's the perfect place for them. The colonel that came over from McConnell Air Force Base, her name was Colonel Kathy Clothier. And she was the 401st Expeditionary Wing Commander during this time period and did just a fabulous job. And she had a couple of our graduates of our combat employment school there with her to help plan and to execute these missions. One of them was a gentleman, goes by the call sign Fossey. Fossey and I spent a lot of time on the phone talking, but his master air attack plan point of contact in my cell was Wayno, and they coordinated back and forth all of the missions. I have a picture of Akrotiri Air Base, which is not a very big place, with 36 tankers, KC-135s, on the ramp. Those tankers were from Grand Forks and from Fairchild, where I was from. As a matter of fact, uh, some of my old Astra Squadron, 97th Air Refueling Squadron folks were there. The major portion of the Astra folks were at Prince Sultan with me, with our squadron commander, Freddie. So now we had our major big wing tanker base, but then crops up another big issue. The KC-135s were just being outfitted with the new multi-point refueling pods or MIPPERS pod. These are pods that have a drogue and a hose in them and they reel out from both wings and we can pump gas through both of these things 
We were initially having some real problems with these things, and it all started with Casey Albright on the USS Lincoln. He calls me up and goes, Sluggo, the Mippers pods are taking our probes off. And I'm like going, oh, darn it. What's happening? And he goes, man, when we plug into that thing and that sine wave of the hose goes up to the pod, turns around and comes back to our air refueling probes, it's taking the probes right off the airplanes. We can't go to war unless we figure out how these Mippers pods work. So I had to sit down one day and figure out what the heck is going on. And I found the answer. I had the air refueling NATOPS manual for the Navy on my desk. And that's where I found the answer. The Navy was used to flying with 10 to 15 knots of overtake to make a hard contact of the probe in the basket. The problem was the brand new Cobham Mippers pods were only set for five knots of overtake in these take-up reel springs. So what was happening was the fighter would hit the basket at 10 to 15 knots of overtake, causing that sine wave, and these take-up reel springs couldn't handle it. And so it would send the sine wave back down to the airplane and it would snap the refueling probes off. Well, we snapped about five of these probes off before we ever realized what the problem was and I figured it out. Now, I want all of you to understand something. Whenever I came up with something like this, I always had Gramps or Wayno or Shrek come take a look at what I was doing. We had this constant sharing of information to make sure that in fact, the decisions that we were making were correct. And often we went to battle with the 80% solution. Now, when I figured this out, I wanted to make sure, all right, am I seeing this wrong? And I handed this to Gramps and to Wayno and they go, nope, you got it. That's exactly what's wrong. And we sent them a message out to the five aircraft carriers saying, slow down. The take-up reels springs are only set for five knots of overtake, not 10 to 15 like your NATOPS manual says. To Cobham's credit, we sent a letter to Cobham in Davenport, Iowa, and they put maintenance teams together that came in theater to Prince Sultan Air Base and to Akrotiri to set all those springs right. My hat's off to Cobham Air Refueling and their field service engineers that came over and fixed this. They did a fantastic job. And so I can't give enough great credit to Cobham Air Refueling and what they did for us when we finally figured out this problem. And, and I mean, those guys were in theater like within a day fixing these. In order to be able to maintain these brand new pods, I did not want to spread them out through the theater. So Akrotiri became the one place that had the multi-point refueling pods or the Mippers pods, period. I called my good friend Moose on the phone and he was the DCAG of Carrier Air Wing 8 on the Roosevelt. And I said, Moose, it's Sluggo at the Kayok. Here's what I've got for you. And I told him about the Mippers pods. Of course, he already knew this because all of the Air Wing commanders talk. And I said, Moose, teams are coming. They're going to fix them. You're going to have 33 of the 38 pod sets that are made on your tankers 
So those tankers will be able to refuel you off both wings and still have the boom, centerline boom, to refuel boom type receivers. And of course, he was extremely pleased with that. But these are all the kinds of things that we had to think about as we began putting this air refueling plan together. And again, this is within five days of the opening of Shock and Awe, which as you remember, didn't start on Friday. It started on Wednesday night when the two F-117s, Ram 11 and Ram 12, went to Dora Farms where we thought we had Saddam. Didn't happen that way. The March Guard KC-135 were at Suda Bay Crete. And these ladies and gentlemen were absolutely fabulous for a reason I'll talk about here when we talk about the jump into Bashur. They were at Crete. The KC-10s ended up at Burgas, Bulgaria. The Bulgarians had just become part of NATO and they wanted to get involved in a big way. And we thought, okay, how can we do this? Oh, let's put some KC-10s on the ramp at Burgas, Bulgaria. But that created another problem, which I did not realize. Because again, this is March, April timeframe. In Europe, it's the end of winter. And Sun Tzu has his five constants, and one of them is earth and weather. You have to always look at the weather. I got a call from Burgas one day, they couldn't fly, because they had snow on the ramp. And snow had gotten in the KC-10's number two engine, which is on the tail. And they didn't have high stands to go and sweep the snow out of the engine inlet because I'm in Saudi Arabia where it's starting to be 100 degrees and it's snowing up there, silly me. So that was where the KC-10's were but it snowed a couple times while we were there and the KC-10s couldn't fly until they swept out those number two engines. Do you see all of the things that we're having to deal with? And I want this to be a life lesson for you. When you plan things, you have to look at all kinds of crazy things. And when you're dealing with tankers, it's where are you going to put them? How many crews do you have? And what's the weather? Because down south, where I was at, we had an entirely different weather problem. And that was the heat. In order for the B-1s to leave Oman, they were having to download gas to be able to upload their 24 bombs. We were having to take off with smaller fuel loads, which was exasperating our fuel available problem in the south because of the heat. We didn't have that problem in the north because the weather was cold, it was snowing. And a matter of fact, there's several great pictures of the Silosat Mountains in southeastern Turkey, and they're just covered in snow because of blizzards. Matter of fact, my good friend Moose told me some of the scariest air refueling evolutions he's ever had was during this time frame where he's on night vision goggles a half mile from the tanker and still doesn't see it yet. And there's thunderstorms and snowstorms and everything all around him. Now, here's another thing that a lot of writers about the Shakana campaign have gotten wrong. 
The KC-135s were a mix at that time in the United States of both E models with the TF-33 engines and R models with the CFM-56 engines. We could not bring the E models with the older engines in theater. It was just too hot. They would have to take off with reduced fuel loads. And because they had reduced fuel loads and their burn rate was higher with the older engines, they just didn't help us. But I was told I had to use the E models and I found the perfect places for them. I put the E models on the island of Lodges and at RAF Fairford and Mildenhall. The reason I put them there was because of the long-range strike missions, the global strike missions, the B-52s and the B-2s that were coming out of the States from Whiteman and the B-52s that were coming out of Fairford. The 100th Air Refueling Wing at Mildenhall had sent also some of their tankers down to Akrotiri, and they were doing great work down there. So we had Fairchild... Grand Forks, and RAF Mildenhall tankers, and all of the multi-point refueling pods there at Akrotiri. The E-models at Lodges and at Fairford refueled the B-52 missions that were coming out of Fairford. And this is what's really crazy about this, that a lot of people don't realize. The B-52s were taking off out of Fairford, and they weren't coming south through Gibraltar. They were going north through Poland. The Poles had also become recent members of NATO and wanted to support the war. The Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic and Hungary and Bulgaria also wanted to support the war. So our B-52s were taking off out of England and going north with a mated E-model that would give them 60 to 80,000 pounds up around Denmark. They would turn southeast to come into Poland, fly across Poland, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Bulgaria, and then into the Black Sea, come down the eastern side of Turkey and into the operating area that the Turks finally opened up for us. And that was the old Operation Northern Watch restricted operating zone that was over the Silosat Mountains. And I'll get to that here in just a moment. The really incredible thing about this B-52 route was they were flying over former Warsaw Pact countries. And sure enough, a couple of these B-52 guys told me that as they were flying across Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovak Republic and Hungary and Bulgaria, these old Russian radars and SAM systems would paint them. They thought, what an eerie feeling it is to be flying over a place that used to be bad guy territory. And now we are flying over it and these are good guys, but they still have all the old equipment. And that's the old equipment that they're using to track their progress as they come down and go into the Black Sea and finally into Iraq. Isn't that crazy? We're flying over airspace that we used to call our enemies, and now they are our friends. And I understand the Polish Air Force got some of the absolute best 
versions of the S-16 because of allowing us the support that we had during the Shakanao campaign and the B-52s coming down for the North War. So all of the E-models never came in theater because it was just too hot. It was just too hot. I had made a slide that General Mosley put in the slide deck for General Franks to show President Bush, hey, look, somewhere in the first week of April, the daily temperatures are going to be over 100 degrees, and we're going to have to start downloading gas on the strike assets so they can start uploading weapons. So fuel required and fuel available were going to cross, and I knew about where it was between the 1st and 3rd of April. My roommate was the chief of weather, and I told him, I says, hey, Fredhead, tell me when it's going to be 100 degrees and stay at 100 degrees or higher here at Prince Sultan. And he told me it was going to be the first of or through the third of April. And it was the second. So I knew the E-models couldn't be in theater and having them at lodges to refuel all the airlift missions that were coming over to refuel the B-2 missions that were coming over for Whiteman, having them at Fairford refueling the B-52s. And of course, the B-2s and the airlifters that are still coming over. We got the KC-135 E-models from the Guard Reserve units uh, into the fight. But none of them ever made it into the theater because we couldn't have them there. Well, as we are approaching D-Day and H-Hour, as I mentioned, we had the attack on Dora Farms where CIA assets said Saddam and his sons are going to be at Dora Farms. An F-117 strike mission was put on that and they were not there, but it sent a very clear message you and your sons are targets. Now, we had another problem. The Roosevelt and the Truman were in the eastern Mediterranean Ocean, and they were in their operating boxes just above Alexandria, Egypt. We worked extremely hard with the Brigadier General Air Attaché to Egypt there in the embassy to get overfly rights for the carrier air wings to come down the Sinai. We knew that we would never be able to keep the coalition together if those air wings flew across Israel. That was just completely out of the question. We could not even approach Israel and ask if we could use their airspace because we know that our Arab coalition partners would say, nope, we're not doing this anymore if Israel's going to be involved. So we had to look at alternate means of getting the Truman and Roosevelt strike packages into the fight because we were told, if you can't get them into the fight, we're going to bring them home. At that time, the chief of the Naval Air Liaison Element, who I saw literally numerous times a day, was Captain Bill Gortney, later Admiral Bill Gortney, and he goes by Shortney. And he and I talked regularly, and he says, Sluggo, we have got to get these guys into the fight. We've got to figure it out. Well, finally, this Brigadier General got Egyptian overfly rights, and the Saudis told us, well, yeah, you can bring them through here, but you can't base them here. They can't land here. And we thought, okay, at least we have a path. But it was long. It was 1,400 miles one way, 2,800 miles round trip. 1,400 miles to get into Iraq, 
spend two, maybe three hours inside of Iraq, turn around and fly home. So we had to come up with an air refueling plan that would get the Truman and the Roosevelt air wings across the Sinai. And this is a lot of gas. Now, both of the air wing commanders came up with different ways of skinning this cat. Newley, who was the air wing commander on Roosevelt, Moose being his deputy, and Cyrus on the Truman came up with a way to do it. They were given tasking to fly what's called defensive counter air missions just west of Baghdad over an airfield called Al Takadam, where they had their MiG 25s and some of their MiG 23s. Both carriers would launch their strike packages. They would form overhead the aircraft carrier, then turn south across the Sinai at night, turn at the Gulf of Agaba, come through Saudi Arabia to two anchor areas that were called Wayno and Waibo, refuel there, and then go on to their defensive counter-air combat air patrol points, or, or DCA cap points, 1,400 miles, one way, 2,800 miles round trip. As far as I know, this is the longest naval strike package missions in naval aviation history, and I don't think it's changed. The two air wing commanders chose different methods for refueling their strike packages. Newley and Moose had their S3s take off and refuel all of their Hornets overhead the carrier. The Tomcats had enough gas to make the transit down the Sinai, around the corner at Edzion, and up to Waibo and Wayno. Cyrus chose a different method. The S3 Vikings would refuel the Hornets to the Vikings' maximum range about halfway down the Sinai, drop them off, and turn around and come back to the carrier. The F-14s, F-18s, and EA-6Bs would continue on down to the Gulf of Agaba and Edzion, make the left-hand turn into Saudi Arabia, come up to Waibo and Wayno, get their gas, and then go in and fill their defensive counter-air vulnerability time. 2,800 miles. That's a long time to be in a fighter plane. The Hornet has a small cockpit, and its seat, I understand, isn't real comfortable. USS Roosevelt's air wing, Carrier Air Wing 8, had F-14D models. VF-213, the Black Lions, famous, famous Tomcat squadron. The Truman and Cyrus's air wing, they had VF-32 Swordsman flying F-14B models. Again, another really famous Tomcat squadron. This Tomcat squadron in 1988 or 89, 1989, shot down two Libyan MiG-23s. So they'd already made a name for themselves. Now, again, the Tomcats could get enough fuel where they could take off and make it all the way to the air refueling areas in western Saudi Arabia. Cyrus did it by having all of his S3s drag everybody down about halfway and drop them off. Newly and Moose had all of them load up to the gills overhead the carrier in case there was any problems and they had to land. 
and then head the rest of the way. So I believe these first Cyrus crosses the Sinai missions began on the night of the 20th of March, which was a Thursday. And like I said, I've, I've talked to Cyrus, Moose, uh, Mongo. We talked about it when uh, I interviewed him. Uh, Dave Koss, you can go back and listen to him talk about that. These were really long missions. They were loaded only with air-to-air ordnance. But Cyrus did something a little different because he wanted to kind of test the system. And he loaded uh, GBU-31 2,000-pound uh, JDAMs on all of his Tomcats, all four of his Tomcats, because he told me that in the tunnel between the two engines, they call it the tunnel, there's very little drag there. But he wanted to find out what exactly the gas requirements were going to be. So he loaded his Tomcats on these defensive counter air missions with one GBU 31 2000 pound JDAMs. Oh, and here's the other thing about the JDAMs. The F-14 Bs and Ds had just gotten the new radar tape Delta, which allowed them to carry these things. They're using these things for the very first time in combat. And Cyrus told me on all their training missions, they he had all the crews go out and go through the checklist for arming up the bomb and putting the lat long and elevation in the bomb and everything. So these are brand new weapons that they've never used before. These new GPS guided weapons on the Tomcat community. The Hornets had been carrying them for a while, but now... Newly and Moose and Cyrus are using these for the first time. So their Tomcats, Cyrus's Tomcats and VF-32, carried a bomb just so they could kind of test the fuel system and see if the fuel numbers were right. And fortunately, they were carrying this 2,000-pound bomb because, again, in the tunnel between the engines where they carry the bombs on the Tomcat, there's very little drag. But they're using a bomb they've never used before in combat. So they get this DCA vol time and their cap points are in the middle near Altacottam and uh, south of Altacottam and south of Baghdad. And they have to cover uh, two, three hour vol times. So they've got two packages making this transit from each of the carriers, four packages in all on the 20th that are carrying nothing but air to air missiles. And Cyrus's Tomcats from the Swordsman are carrying a single GBU 31. Now, the next night is the 21st, is the opening of Shock and Awe. I think Cyrus told me he launches a 26-plane alpha package of Tomcats. He's four Tomcats or six Tomcats and 20 Hornets all loaded wall-to-wall with three GBU-31 2,000-pound JDAMs, and the Hornets are carrying what they call goofy gas, a centerline tank, and then another tank, external fuel tank, on an inboard wing pylon. They call that goofy gas. So now everybody's loaded up with bombs. The Tomcats are doing what's called self-escort, where they've got air-to-air missiles as well as the bombs, and they're doing this whole thing all over again on the night of the 21st. Newly and Moose... Refuel everybody overhead, Roosevelt. Cyrus and his air wing are being drugged down the Sinai Peninsula behind his six or eight S3s, loading the Hornets up to the gills so that they can make the full trip up there. Now, here's something very fascinating that I found out from talking to both Moose 
and Cyrus. Cyrus is in the middle of the opening night. He's doing their post-strike refueling off of three KC-10s that we put out in, I think it was Weibo, just to refuel these long-range strike packages. Now, these three KC-10s are going to have plenty of gas. They came from Aldafra, so they have the wing pods that have drogues in them, but they also have the centerline baskets as well as the booms. So there's plenty of places for them to refuel. They're all in the middle of their post-strike refueling, getting enough gas to go back to the carrier when all of a sudden another strike group shows up on the wings and it's Moose and Mongo. And Moose told me, he goes, Cyrus, is that you on the tankers? And Cyrus goes, Moose, is that you? And he goes, yeah, get off so that my guys can get gas and we can make our timing and get to our targets. And so Cyrus and his guys all drop away from the KC-10s. Moose and his guys all plug in, all get their pre-strike gas and then head to the target area. And Cyrus and all of his strikers, the Tomcats, Hornets, EA-6Bs, jump back on get all of their gas to make it back home, and off they go. Well, I think it's when Moose is coming out, they find out that one of the tankers is delayed for an hour, and that isn't going to work. And this is where the Brits get involved. The Brits had brought in their VC-10 tankers, and they were stationed at Prince Sultan where I was. And I believe there were seven to eight of them on the ramp. And one of them was out there in Wayno and Waibo and was hearing that they had a sour tanker that wasn't going to show up. The British Airborne Warning and Control System uh, aircraft, call sign Bondo, was also working out in the West. And one of their VC-10s said, hey, Bondo, we understand this Navy strike package needs some gas. We can fill in for them. We've got drogues. And so Bondo starts coordinating, I believe it was with Moose and his package. And this VC-10 actually drags them southwest to the Gulf of Agaba, fills them all full up gas so that they can make it back to the carrier, the Roosevelt. Again, this is where our Brit coalition partners saved our bacon. And they did it numerous times. Bondo is also involved in the VF-154 Black Knight F-14A that goes down in the West Deserts. And they just do a fabulous job of coordinating all the rescue assets and getting uh, the right people to the right tankers and getting the A-10s and the Helos out to that F-14 crew. And they get picked up and two days later they're flying again. I can't say enough great things about our Brit partners. They were fabulous to work with and just great, great on the battlefield when things went to hell and we needed somebody to fill in. Well, finally, the Turks say yes. We were going to give them $2 billion to allow us to use Inserlik and to base airplanes at Inserlik and to fly basically through the old Operation Northern Watch corridor and do air campaign operations in the old Operation Northern Watch restricted operating zone in southeastern Turkey. Well, when they their parliament voted no, 
they didn't get the money and their stock market tanked. And they came back and said, okay, well, uh, we won't let you base airplanes here, but we'll let you fly through the ONW corridor. Well, now Truman and Roosevelt have a way to get to the fight that isn't 2,800 miles round trip. It's still long, but it's not 2,800 miles long. So they close up shop and at flank speed head for a box just south of Adana, Turkey, that the Roosevelt and Truman began operating out of. Cyprus is still standing up these 38 tankers. All of them aren't on the ramp yet, but will be within a couple days. Uh, I think it's a day later. They begin flying operations from these battle boxes that are just south of Adana. And how they did operations was the strike packages would take off and they would meet their tankers at the mouth of the Operation Northern Watch Corridor with the two wingtip pod, mippers pod baskets out and drag them through the ONW Corridor. The three air refueling areas that we had set up in the old ONW restricted operating zone were POPs, MAC, and Vayner, V-A-N-E-R. MAC and Vayner later became really critical. Pops always stayed where it was. So now what's happening is the E2s are going through first with the strike package right behind them, getting gas, getting filled up, and then they would flow into northern Iraq and start looking for their targets. But remember, I told you, the weather sucked. And there were days where they had these towering thunderstorms where they're trying to refuel with all kinds of St. Elmo's fire, dancing around the KC-135, dancing around the f 14 the EA-6Bs, the Hornets, all of those things. So it was really challenging. And like I mentioned, Moose told me it was some of the most challenging air refueling he's ever done on night vision goggles in the clouds waiting for the tanker to show up. But they pulled it off. They did it. And they were able to support the special forces guys that were finding targets for them. And they basically set up kill boxes, were doing on-call close air support and doing a fabulous job. And then that stupid wind windstorm showed up. My roommate was a Lieutenant Colonel Weather guy that worked for 9th Air Force. Big, huge bodybuilder, big arms, big shoulders, big legs, little head. And so we called him Fred Head, his first name and head. Fred Head came in one day, drops all of his stuff about eight o'clock in the morning, which is usually when I was waking up. I worked noon to midnight and my replacement, my deputy worked from midnight to noon. And Fred Head comes in about eight o'clock in the morning, drops all of his stuff down, says, hey, sorry, Slogo to wake you up, but you need to get up anyway, because we're about to get a royal butt whooping from the weather. I go, what do you mean, Fred Head? He says, one of those stupid sandstorms is going to be here probably by this afternoon and be howling through tomorrow, just howling. And I said, well, define your howling. And he said, 75 mile an hour winds and blowing sand and dust and rain. It's going to rain mud. So I asked him, I said, well, where? And he said, all the way from northern Turkey and Iran, all the way through the AOR. It's just going to sweep through for about two, maybe three days. He said, get all your sand gear out, your goggles, everything, because this is going to suck eggs. And I said, all right. Well, this sandstorm happened just a couple 
couple days after the opening night of Shock and Awe. And Fred Head was right. I was walking from the Kayak and my desk to the Chow Hall, which was in another building. And any piece of skin that was not covered with some article of clothing, it felt like I was getting stung with a thousand needles because it made those little drops of rain picked up all of the dust and sand that was being blown into the air and it was moving at 75 miles an hour. And I'll never forget going over there and thinking to myself, holy smoke, we couldn't see a football field in this thing, at least at the at the Kayak where I was. Now, we still had airplanes that were taking off because the crazy thing about this windstorm was the winds were going right down the runway, literally 75 knots right down the runway. And so airplanes could still take off and we were still flying some missions, but the Roosevelt and the Truman could not because they obviously couldn't stay into the wind because at some point boat meets land, <laughs> right? <laughs> boat meets lighthouse, whatever you want to call it. So they had to stand down for, I think it was two days before these things blew through. And what a mess it made. I had never seen anything like this except for in the movie, The Mummy, and it portrays it extremely well. You just see this great big, huge wall coming. Our giant voice warning system was going off. You know, stay indoors, stay indoors, stay indoors. Weather alert, weather alert. Uh, this, I think they call him Shamal, is coming. Stay indoors if you don't have to be outside. But Truman and Roosevelt and the North War basically stopped for about two days, which is a little sketchy because you're worried about your guys on the ground, obviously, and you can't provide them air support. Now, right after the Shamal blows through, we have to get ready for the 173rd Airborne Brigade airdrop into Bashur. This is just a little airfield up in the hill areas of northeastern Iraq, and it's gorgeous up there. Beautiful trees, green. Uh, it was crazy. All the guys that told us that were up there said, man, it's just gorgeous up here, Sluggo. You should see this place. But we were going to drop the 173rd Airborne into this airfield. And once again, we had a number of restrictions that caused us problems. And this is where my March Guard guys became heroes. 15 C-17s were going to leave Aviano Air Base with about a thousand soldiers and all their equipment and do this airdrop in the middle of the night over this airfield, 9,000 foot airfield called Bashar, Iraq. The problem we have is what's called island destination fuel. We have to come back to our base with at least 32,000 pounds of gas on board because if for some reason the runways crap out on us, we have to be able to hold for an hour and a half and wait. So island destination fuel was something that we had in the back of our minds on all of our planning. But now I've got a base at Cyprus, which is my main base. And again, more guys on Suda Bay Crete. And now they're having to do the fuel planning for this mission. And again, we get screwed by the Turks. They only allow us to fly the ONW corridor. They will not let us go up over Constantinople and the Bosphorus. Nope, don't even ask. So what's happening is all of the tankers are having to go through the Operation Northern Watch Corridor, which skims along the very southern border of Turkey, right across from Syria, go out to the restricted operating zone, 
turn north to a town, I think that was called Apo, then turn west over the Black Sea, turn in front of the 15 C-17s, offload their gas, follow them back to Apo, turn south to the restricted operating area, then back west through the operational Northern Watch corridor, back to their base. The March Guard guys call and tell me, Sluggo, we're landing with 10 to 12,000 pounds of gas. We don't have island destination fuel. And I went nuts. But the Lieutenant Colonel planner that was there, and I can't remember his name, says, Sluggo, we want to go ahead and do the mission and accomplish the mission. And I said, okay, tell me what the weather is. Remember? Always got to look at the weather. He says, Sluggo, when we get back here, it's 10 knots down the runway and Cavu, clear and visibility unlimited. I have no heartburn about flying the mission this way. And I come to find out that the guys at Akrotiri Cyprus feel the same way. They're getting back Scotia on gas too. So I tell the March planner, you go ahead and fly the missions as you have them scheduled. I will clear this with the director of mobility forces, the two-star general Nick Williams or his deputy, Brigadier General Kurt Chakowsky. Both have become great friends and make sure it's all right. But right now you've got the green light from me. Sure enough, I went in and told Brigadier General Chakowsky, we got a problem. We got an island destination fuel problem. Boss, can I get a waiver to the 32,000 pounds that all of the tankers have to have for island destination fuel? And he goes, okay, just explain real quick what's going on, okay? You know, and that's a mistake on my part. Always tell the general, here's the story, here's the solution. And I didn't do that this time. And I said, okay, boss, here's the story. The jump into Bashur is going to require us to go the long route through the corridor, up to Apo, out into the Black Sea, and then back again. The March Guard guys are going to land back at Crete with only 10 to 12,000 pounds in their tanks. They won't have island destination fuel to hold for the hour and a half that's required by reg. He said, what did you tell him? I said, press. And he goes, good answer, press. That's a fighter pilot's way of saying, keep going, keep moving, press. I said, okay, boss, that's what I figured you'd say. And I already told him that on the phone. So when it came time to do the jump into Bashur on the 26th of March, we knew that we were going to be skosh on gas when we landed, but that the C-17s would have all of the gas that they needed, both coming in and going out. The C-17s would have pre-drop gas and they'd have their post-drop gas. The tankers would suck it up, land at these locations below the island destination fuel, and it worked out perfectly. Again, my good buddy Moose, Carrier Air Wing 8 on the Roosevelt, was the night carrier, and we did the jump into Bessure at night. He was flying a Tomcat that night with a lantern pod, a lantern targeting pod. He said, Sluggo? It was the most surreal thing, watching those C-17s go over Bashur and watch those little parachutes come out and blossom and watch those guys go down and land on the airfield. He says, I took a lot of video tonight of these guys jumping out of the C-17s. He said, it was just freaking surreal. And I said, well, did you have to drop anything? Did you have to go bomb anybody? He goes, oh yeah, I had to do that too. (laughs) They needed our support once they found out what was happening. And believe it or not, the 173rd had a CNN journalist embedded with them and he jumped with them. But we told them, we told that CNN journalist, you cannot start broadcasting until at least 15 minutes after the jump. 
then you can get your little satellite doohickey out and broadcast all you want. But during the jump, we don't want you broadcasting because of operational security. And he understood that. He understood that. He was fine with that. But he got to make a jump. Now, we began sending airplanes into Bashur, C-17s, that had tanks and equipment and other things, until finally, I think the runway cracked and we could only send C-130s in there from then on. But the jump into Bashur was a huge success, overcoming some incredible obstacles of weather, thunderstorms, the restrictions placed upon us by the Turks, having to fly these long sorties for the tankers through the ONW corridor, north into the Black Sea, meet up with the C-17s, fly reverse routing back, and it all came together. Well, one day I got a note from Moose. And he said, Sluggo, we got to move Mac and Vayner and we need another one. And I'm almost hesitant to tell you where we need it. And I said, okay, well, just let me know where. He goes, I need it down around Al-Sulimaniya. And I said, Moose, I don't even know where that's at. Where is it? And he goes, just go southeast of Mosul near the Iranian border. And I found it. I said, you got to be kidding me. He goes, no, Sluggo, we really need that down here. And one of his planners came up and said, Sluggo, we've got to have something down there. And I said, Moose, you have got to promise me if anything happens down there, the tanker guys are really hanging it out to any surface-to-air missile or any high-fast flying Iraqi MiG that would jump the tanker and shoot it down. Moose, we've never had a KC-135 or a KC-10 shot down during combat operations. I don't want to start now. I do not want my legacy to be, you're the only chief of an air refueling control team that had a KC-135 shot down. And he says, Sluggo, I promise you, no harm will come to any of your tankers if you put one down there. As a matter of fact, I'll make a deal with you. If you can put an air refueling area down here, I will dedicate airplanes just to hang with the tanker and defend it. And I said, from both surface to air and air to air, he said, absolutely. And I said, okay, well, Moose, tell me where, where do you want it? And see, this is another great lesson for all you businessmen out there. What are your customer requirements? When was the last time you actually sat down and asked your customers, how are we doing? What do we need to change? How can we be better? And sometimes it's pretty brutal. But you know what? The information that you got from that are going to make you heroes in the eyes of your customer if you make those changes. And so I asked Moose, where do you want this thing? And he said, can you design it so that it lays with a south west to northeast orientation just a little bit south of al-sulimaniya and i said yeah i can do that and i said hey look you know i have my processes and i got to send this through our chain because this is obviously kind of hanging it out he goes i understand that sluggo but just remember i'm promising you we'll take care of you guys i said okay fine and he said on another note can we move mac and vayner to somewhere north of Mosul and lay them side by side. And I said, okay, we're getting a lot of SAM fire reports out of Mosul. He goes, yeah, I know. We're looking for that SA-2 site. We haven't found it yet. But when we do, 
all of the unnamed gods of this world are going to come down upon it. And I just started laughing. I go, why is that? He said, because whoever's manning that thing is really good. They've done a really good a disguise and we've had a hard time finding it and it's really frustrating us and pissing us off. I said, okay, fine, but man, you can't let that thing shoot at the tankers, okay? And I'll put them, you know, like 30 miles north of Mosul so that you guys don't have too far to go, but we're out of that footprint. He goes, fine. So I took Mac and Vayner out of the restricted operating zone area and moved them with a north to south orientation. One to the left of Mosul, north and to the left, and one north and to the right of Mosul. And uh, Mac was the west one, Vayner was the east one. And the one that we put down near Al-Sulimaniyah was called Valley, because it was over this great, big, huge, gorgeous valley. The KC-135 guys and KC-10 guys that went down to it said, oh, Sluggo, this thing is just beautiful down here. Hey, Sluggo, are the Iranians doing anything to us? And I go, look, you're going to have to ask the E2 Hawkeyes and the AWACS. Uh, I haven't heard anything, haven't seen anything, but I've got a promise from Moose. If anybody tries to hurt you guys, he's going to put the hurt on them. He says, yeah, we've got no problem coming down here, man. There's tons of airplanes down here refueling off of us. So uh, rest assured, we got plenty of uh, protection down here at Va- in Valley. Note from Moose one day, because I, I had to ask him, I go, Moose, you know, how's Valley working out? How's, how are these things working out for you? He goes, oh, Sluggo. These are fantastic. This is all working out great for us. Well, it was kind of during this time period, one of my old buddies showed up. Unbeknownst to me, my good buddy Trigger was the XO of VFA 37, the Bulls. And he shows up at the Kayak. And I'm walking up, I think, from lunch. And there is Trigger standing at the top of the stairs. Trigger and I go way back. He was a Navy exchange pilot flying F-15s with the 12th, the Dirty Dozen, when I was stationed in Okinawa during the 90s. And he's now kind of running the planning cell for the North War because he's a strike lead, obviously. Top Gun grad and just a great friend. And he was one of the sources for my book. He's the reason I was able to put a lot of this stuff together about the North War, because he kept one of his briefing books that he took with him on his mission, his, his like cliff notes for his mission. He kept one of those and gave it to me. And that's how I'm able to put a lot of this together is from Trigger's briefing book. So Trigger shows up, tells me the same thing. Sluggo, tanker guys are doing great out there. They seem to know when to move even before we do and everything's working out there. You know, we just got to get them out of the weather. You know, it seems like you guys always find the one cloud out there and fly right through it. I said, yeah, standard. (laughs) He just laughed. But that's how the end of the war came. When the end of the war came, that's pretty much how we were set up. That's all the planning that we put into this. This is all of the things that we had to think about, plan for, the changes that we had to have when that stupid windstorm goes through, the jump into Bashur and the restrictions that are placed on us. All of these planning factors had a direct effect on how we did our business, but my team got through it. And it was just a thing of beauty to watch. It's great when you can be a leader of a team and you can just say, guys, here's what we got to do. And you get out of their way. I watched a video the other day by Jocko Willink on leadership where he says, if 
you have an 80% solution and one of your subordinates has an 80% solution, which one do you go with? He says, you go with the subordinates 80% solution every day of the week. And fortunately, the team that I had was coming up with 90, 95% solutions and they were doing it in 30 minutes or less to some really, really complex air refueling problems. And so in a lot of ways, I just got out of their way. Matter of fact, let me give you one really good example. I told you we had an air refueling area named Waibo down in Saudi Arabia, out in Western Saudi Arabia. It was named after a guy that was on my team. His call sign being Waibo. Waibo, if you're listening to this, buddy, drinks are on me when I'm back in Spokane. He's now uh, a great civilian counselor up there in the Spokane area. When an army ship of people or cargo or weapons or ammo goes through the Suez Canal, it has to have one of these protection teams on it. I had no clue about this. I had never heard of such a thing or even know, even, and I didn't even know it existed. And one night, Weibo comes up to me with a bunch of paperwork in his hands. And I go, hey, what's up? And he goes, Sluggo, there's going to be a problem. The Army doesn't know it yet, but it's going to be a problem. <laughs> and I go, okay, what's that? He said, the, I think it was called a Raven Protection Team or Eagle Protection Team, had just come into Kuwait and didn't have a ride back to Suda Bay, Crete to hop on the next ship. And I said, okay, just explain to me what this is. And he goes, hey, when an army ship full of men and materiel comes through the straits and goes through the Suez Canal, it has to have one of these protection teams on it. This one is stuck in Kuwait City. Here's what I want to do. I want to take one of the airplanes and crews from Sheikh Giza. I want them to go to Kuwait airport, pick these guys up with all of their equipment and gear, and then fly them to Suda Bay, Crete and drop them off. If we execute in time, Sluggo, then the protection team will be back at Suda Bay about 17 hours before the ship arrives. So they'll get some good rest uh, before they have to uh, put their hats back on again, their helmets back on again. And I said, great plan. What's the paperwork? He said, here's all the paperwork for the mission. Here's all the country clearances. Here's the ammunition uh, waiver forms for putting it on the KC-135. Here's all the weight and balance stuff. I already ran it with one of our booms. And I just had to smile. And I say, why, Bo? Run with it. Why get in his way? He's got this knocked. He's got the 95% solution. You know what I told him? I said, I've only got one thing for you on your plan. And he kind of looked at me, you know, okay, well, what's wrong? And I said, nothing's wrong. This is superb. What I want you to do is give the Sheikh Isa 135 crew 24 hours on the ground in Suda Bay so they can go put their feet in the water of the med and get a few drinks and get a good night's sleep in a nice hotel. He says, that's awesome, Sluggo. I'll do that. I'll cut the mission so they got 24 on the ground. I said, no, cut it with 26. Can we afford to give them 26? He says, yeah, I think we can do that. I said, perfect. I had great people working for me. Yeah, I was the chief of this team. But you know what, folks? They needed very little adult supervision. 
the guys and gals in the master air attack plan cell that were doing all the planning, the guys and gals that were down on the desk doing all the execution were just fabulous. And when you have a team like that, there's nothing you can't do. And after the war ended and I was getting ready to go home, General Mosley brought me into his office, handed me two coins and said, your team has performed magnificently. He says, Sluggo, I never worried about the gas. Uh, Gas was our greatest commodity, but your team handled everything magnificently. You guys had the most problems and the most headaches to deal with, and you guys did it. Thanks. That's about all I can think of. But I hope you can see some of the lessons in this. What do your customers need? Sit down with them. Talk to them. Find out what they need, but ask the hard question, how are we doing? Be flexible enough in your planning that when plan A goes to hell, plan B scoots right in there. And even give it a funny name, roast beef, no turkey. We all had a great laugh over that. Take a look at the weather when you're going somewhere. I'm down in hot Saudi Arabia, didn't realize it's snowing in Burgos, Bulgaria, and how that snow would affect KC-10 operations, all because they didn't have a high lift that could get them up high enough to look down inside the intake of that number two tail engine. I'm in Saudi Arabia. I don't have to worry about snow. The Army was actually shooting its multiple launch rocket systems and its ATAC missiles through the air refueling areas down in southern Iraq because I was so arrogant that I didn't think I needed to coordinate with my army bros. Little did I realize that ATACMs go to 102,000 feet. The person that you don't plan with and don't bring into your circle is the one that's going to kill you. And always remember, if you're going to do max tanker operations, there's only two places you can do it. Some place that's got 9,500 feet of runway and is an international airport or a prepared military airfield because you're going to need over 9 million pounds of gas a day to maintain your operations. It's all about logistics. The great Helmuth von Molke, the great Prussian general. Smart men study tactics. Brilliant men study logistics. It's been fun doing this with you. I told you I wanted to do something special for you last week. And uh, sick in bed, reading all this stuff. And I thought, you know, this is a great time to tell this North War story. Tomcats, Hornets. EA-6Bs, S-3 Vikings, E-2 Hawkeyes from two carrier air wings, B-52s coming out of Fairford, RC-135s and AWACS coming out of Akrotiri, Cyprus. What a dynamic this was, but we handled it and we did it. Thanks for listening once again to the Lessons from the Cockpit show. Lessons from the Cockpit is financed by Wallpilot. Custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are very detailed aircraft profiles printed on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to any wall or flat surface. A lot of people just frame these things. So please go by wallpilot.com and take a look at some of these and order some of these uh, great profile prints for the walls of your home office or hangar. This and previous episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit show can be found on my website at marcusera.com under the podcast pull-down box. Thanks for listening and please share episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast with your family, friends, and loved ones. To all of you, a very happy Thanksgiving here to those here in the States that are celebrating this week, this Thursday, 
with family and friends around him. We look forward to talking to you next week once again on the Lessons from the Cockpit show where we interview some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Thanks, folks. Take care.